0: Listener-supported, WNYC Studios. Hi there, it's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. It's only August, and congressional elections are still 15 months away, but already a bunch of Republicans in the House have announced their
1: retirements. Mr. Speaker, I rise to offer a report on that. U.S. Representative Martha Roby of Alabama announced on Friday that she will not be seeking re-election. Rob Bishop from Utah will not seek another term in the House, joining Congressman Paul Mitchell and Pete Olson. And we've also learned this morning 24th District Republican Congressman Kenny Marchant will retire at the end of this term.
2: After serving out the remainder of the 116th Congress, I return to my family. Into our small farm. Timing-wise, has to do with leadership. I told folks for for 14 years that that if I was no longer leadership and didn't have influence beyond my own vote, that I was coming home.
0: I'm still a Republican. Uh, just because I'm not in Congress doesn't change that. Um, so I'm looking forward to continuing to make sure that the Republican Party looks like America.
1: Serving in public service can be a certain chapter of your life, but it's not one that you have to sign on to for the rest of your life.
0: Now, this in and of itself isn't that unusual. It's the first time in eight years that Republicans have not been in the majority in the House, and many members soon realize it's not really that much fun to be in the minority. But what's different this time, and what has people talking, is that there's a noticeable trend in the types of members who are retiring and the sorts of districts these members represent, namely suburban districts. And these retirements have made many of the more establishment Republicans worried including this guy.
3: My name is Brendan Buck. I'm a partner at Seven Letter Communications and the former chief communications advisor and counselor to House Speaker Paul Ryan.
0: This week, I sat down with Brendan to get a better sense of how Republicans like him are viewing these departures.
3: There's a big shift, I think, in um, what politics has become over the last few years that is Um, sending people away, and not just the number of people, but the type of people, I think, is probably the more interesting uh, dynamic that we're seeing. The people who have left, in my opinion, are some of the more thoughtful members that we have. And they're the type of people who came to Washington to work on policy. They wanted to uh, develop uh, legislative skills, get things done, and make a difference And uh, politics has become such a sport these days that that type of uh, leadership is not really rewarded. Uh, What ends up getting rewarded is how loud you can be and how much of a Twitter following and how much of a presence you can have on cable news. And what that ends up doing is people like Will Hurd or Martha Roby, who are really interested in working on policy and getting things done, seeing their work getting crowded out. And that can be really discouraging. And so not only are you seeing a, a number of retirements probably higher than you would expect at this point, it's really the type of members that are leaving that I think is also really interesting and not necessarily tells you a story of what seats we're going to win or lose. But really, the question is, who are the type of people that are going to come in and replace those people, and what the makeup of the House Republican Conference is going to look like?
0: You also had a a number of retirements, a lot of retirements, actually, going into the 2018 election when you still were in the majority. I know a lot of them were committee chairmen, chairwomen who knew that they would no longer be chairmen because they had term limits. But it seems to me that that this frustration is about more than just being in the minority, right? And that it's been building, would you say, even before Trump? Or is Trump really the catalyst here?
3: Uh, I think, well, I think Trump is is a sort of end result of the direction of politics uh, we're heading for a while. And, you know, my former boss used to talk about it as the entertainment wings of the parties are on the rise. And as I was saying, you know, if you think politics is sport right now, this is a great time to be in politics. If you think it's about hyperbole and railing against your opponent and getting a lot of attention for yourself, that's the type of people you want to have in Congress right now. But that can be really frustrating to people who aren't like that. We often talk about how there are two types in Congress. There are beers and there are doers. And what you're seeing is the people who are beers, who just want to be a member of Congress and want to have a platform, are having a a moment. But the doers are getting really frustrated right now. And it is not a great lifestyle when The focus of an entire week is perhaps something that the president tweeted or is uh, whatever the outrage of the week is um, rather than what you're working on to get things done. And it's it's harder than ever to get things done. And I think that's part of it as well.
0: Let's also talk about some of the people who are retiring, where they are retiring from. We've heard a lot about retirements from Texas and... Retirements from suburban areas. Sometimes those are Texas suburbs. (laughs) Sometimes they are suburban areas outside of Texas. But the fact is Democrats' greatest movement, where they've been the most successful in 2018, and it looks like going into 2020, are these formerly Republican suburbs. What's going on there?
3: Yeah, this is even less an issue of policy. It is about uh, the temperament. And uh, I think a lot of it you you have to look to the president um, for. My hometown, I think, is a great example. I'm from the Atlanta suburbs, Georgia's 6th Congressional District. This used to be Congressman Tom Price, a bit conservative. It used to be former Speaker Newt Gingrich. And now it is not only um, a seat held by a Democrat, it is held... Uh, by an anti-gun activist Democrat whose uh, son was tragically lost to gun violence, and it's a shift you're seeing all across the country. And it again, I think it is less about um, disagreements over policy. I don't think that that area is necessarily any less interested in tax cuts or deregulation or a strong military as it used to be. Um, I think a lot of it is temperament, and they and they are repelled by the type of politics we see today, um, the, the the nationalism. Um, the, uh, you know, the, any conversation about racism, um, I think really sets off people in those areas. And we're talking about more educated areas, more affluent, uh, areas and culturally they are just not aligned. I don't think with a lot of the Republican base or the president's base and the president, um, consistently, uh, plays only really to his base and doesn't really do a whole lot to try to, um, cater to what we're traditionally Uh, Republican constituencies in these suburbs and over time if you just ignore those constituencies and only play to a more nationalist uh, anti-immigrant populist base uh, it's eventually it's gonna it's gonna show and it's starting to.
0: And do you think those suburbs are ever gonna come back?
3: I think that it's possible because again I I don't know that there's necessarily a a shift away from some of the core things that Republicans have, have traditionally talked about. The question is whether Republicans are ever gonna get back to those things. And if the party is now going to be a populist party for the next ten years, maybe they maybe they won't be coming back. I, I, again, I, I firmly believe that a free market, a strong military, a traditional Republican ideology will have a home in those in those areas. Uh, It's whether or not we, we decide we want to go back to that.
0: The pushback to your point, especially when you're thinking about this maybe at a presidential level more so than just a House level is that that message, and certainly your former boss, Paul Ryan, was a big proponent of that message, was on the ticket in 2012 with another candidate who pushed that message, Mitt Romney. It doesn't. Sell, and that the Trump message, the populism, the nationalism, is actually what brought Republicans to the White House.
3: It did for one term um, so far, and since then we we lost uh, the House right afterwards. I, I, I do not believe that a rural white party is a national party. Um, I don't think that we can ju- we can win national elections just based on on that demographic. Uh, that the president tends to, to play to so, so often. Um, yeah, we lost in the 2012 election with, with Mitt Romney and, and Paul Ryan on the ticket, but we also held majorities in Congress for a really long time. Uh, I, I certainly agree that the Trump wing of the party has overtaken a uh, more traditional wing of Republicans, but uh, we've had a pretty good long run before that, and I don't know that I'm ready to say that uh, the... Uh, Trump style of politics is one that it can hold national office f- for a, a period of time.
0: Do you think that for the folks on the Republican side who have retired, some of whom have been vocally critical of President Trump, that they've basically given up on the party? Or do you think they're just sort of waiting for Trump to no longer be in office?
3: I certainly think that there are some members who are not comfortable running alongside the president and what his type of politics uh... does it makes them uncomfortable and it's not reflective uh, of who they are i don't know what the long game is uh... certainly one of the effects of these retirements is that you're going to have a lot more trump-like members of congress that are going to be there i think even if he does not get reelected, i think there's going to be a relatively long tail uh... of his his effect on the party and how long populism becomes sort of central to the who the party is the reality is this is um trump's party at this point and i don't know how that's going to change anytime soon
0: is that part of the reason that the speaker left as well was the frustration with the president and you either work with him or you get attacked
3: i think he was pretty clear that the reason he left was he realized his kids were only going to be in the house for another few years and he wanted to be a full-time dad and a a full-time husband and that's what he's doing but you know I, i don't want to suggest that that being speaker in, in the trump era is not a challenge and, and it certainly was and i think all of us were, were were tired by by the end of it but that certainly wasn't uh, his his motivating fact
0: were you around when he would he say to the president or others around the president look we're losing these suburbs we are losing these members who are thoughtful legislators we're losing people who could hold on to districts that no other republican could
3: yeah, I think the not to divulge private conversations too much, but he would regularly talk to the president about how uh, particularly the suburbs were an important area for us and that we need to make sure that we're not doing things to to undermine members there. I think our advice to the White House was that we needed to be focusing more on the economy uh, rather than immigration. You know, I, we had, a, I think, a great story to tell on the strength of the economy and how much people were doing better in their personal lives. Uh, if you recall at the end uh, of the 2018 cycle, the president brought up birthright citizenship. I certainly think that hurt some of our members, maybe like a Carlos Carbello in, in the Miami area, uh, who unexpectedly lost. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the speaker's message, and I don't, I don't think it's any secret, was that we need to be focusing and running on, on a strong economy uh, and not necessarily some of the more anti-immigration populist messages.
0: Yeah, so the president didn't really take his advice. No, not so much. <laughs> Brendan Buck, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me.
3: Happy to do it. Thank you.
0: Brendan Buck is a partner at Seven Letter Communications and the former chief communications advisor and counselor to Speaker Paul Ryan. One of the more high-profile Republican retirements came back in June when Congresswoman Susan Brooks, who represents parts of suburban Indianapolis, announced she would not seek re-election. The news was a shock to many, especially since Brooks is heading up recruitment efforts for the National Republican Congressional Committee ahead of 2020. In other words, she's the person tasked with convincing other Republican candidates and specifically more women candidates to run for Congress.
1: But she herself is bowing out. I asked her about why she was leaving. Just some things have changed with circumstances with my children, family and parents and in-laws and we just decided and I decided really because they would have supported whatever I decided, but I decided it was time to, you know, step away from public service and be just much more present with my family and friends.
0: I was talking with Brendan Buck, who used to work with Speaker Ryan, and his concern at this point is that folks who really want to come into to Congress and get things done are so frustrated and are leaving. And then in their place come people who just aren't as dedicated to, to, to moving legislation. They're more dedicated to building their own brand. What do you think of that?
1: I disagree with Brendan while I respect what, what he's saying. I disagree that because the people I'm talking to, that is not their goal. They are coming in, uh, like I did, wanting to work on problems in the district, wanting to work on things they're passionate about, whether it's veterans issues, whether it's the addiction issues in the country, whether it's jobs and education. They are really focused. Now, I think what's changed from when I came to Congress in 2012 is you're right, Social media is now playing a much uh, greater role in, you know, raising your profile, but also in getting your message out. And so I think what people have to figure out is how to have incredibly effective communications teams in order to just get their message out, even within their own district. (laughs) I get thanked a lot. From people who do follow me on Twitter, it always amazes me, you know, when people kind of come up and say, hey, I follow you on Twitter. Thanks for being so reasonable. Thanks for, you know, talking about things of substance. Thanks for, um, you know, not getting into uh, a lot of the nasty rhetoric and, and, you know, fights with people. Um, And that's what I'm trying to, and I think other members are trying to focus on letting people know that Congress does get things done and that we we are still working on and solving problems.
0: So how much is your frustration about that piece? I mean, that you have people coming up to you and saying, hey, thank you so much for being reasonable, but that's not the perception of
1: Congress. No, I know it isn't. And so that's why I'm always so pleased that when people say that. I'm on this select committee on the modernization of Congress. I don't know if you know much about that committee. It's a bipartisan committee. It hasn't Happened since the 90s. It happens about you know once every quarter of a century, and in this committee led by Derek Kilmer of Washington and Tom Graves from Georgia, and it's a completely bipartisan committee. We're talking about how do we, how can we be more transparent and let the American people know more about what we work on. So for instance, we passed out of the House in a significant way a robocall bill, fighting those horrible robocalls that everyone receives, and that got little to no media attention because it was on the same day that, you know, Bob Mueller came and testified before the House. We we are doing things, but we've got to find a better way to cut through the controversy that the media focuses on, quite frankly, to let people know what we're working on.
0: It seems also challenging at a time when the president of the United States is also a big Twitter fan.
1: That has been his main mode of communication. There's no question about it. And I think that um, and and so that has changed the way that people follow politics and follow what's happening in their government. Um, And there is just so much engagement. But yet that's another thing that we in this modernization committee are talking about is that how can we do a better job in Congress? promoting civility and promoting the way in which we communicate, which involves our members as well.
0: And what do you think, though, the the president himself, though, that he's setting behavior that other people are following?
1: Well, I think, you know, certainly we have seen that. There have been times when I have uh, spoken out against the president's rhetoric. And there have certainly been times when I've expressed my frustration, but I think, you know, it's also hard to, you know, point fingers at someone else. We're trying to remind people that as leaders of the country, we we do need to be setting the tone. We need to be demonstrating civility. And, and, and it's not just the president. It is really across uh, kind of public life in many ways. You
0: understand this. Many of your colleagues in the House understand this and how to win the suburbs and and in some cases win the suburbs back from Democrats. Do you think the White House is with you
1: on this? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't. Uh, I would certainly hope so. I mean, I think the White House appreciates that we got a lot more done when we had a Republican controlled house. And so we need to get the house back. And I think that we can get the house back. I, I don't get to see him as often as I used to. But I, I think Vice President Pence, uh, someone, you know, born with and has lived the mantra of Hoosier hospitality, and I think has uh, done really Fine job, being a model of civility, and he always has. I mean, he and I were in law school together, so I've known him a very long time. This is back in the '80s, you know. And I, I think that we just—that's um, what it's going to take to win back the suburbs. To, um, and I think we can. I really do. I think this last, you know, election cycle—it's so—it's so common historically for, you know, the president's party to lose the House in that next election cycle. And we saw that. But I think we can also uh, break that tradition by getting it back by picking up 18 seats. That's what we need to win. And based on the candidates I've been talking to, the coaching we're doing, you know, I think we've got a great, a great chance to do it. I don't think that the Democrats who they are going after in those seats have a lot that they can talk about that they've accomplished. When we focus on the policies, the American people, whether they're in the suburbs, rural or urban areas, are going to realize that, you know, a lot of what the Democrat policies are, are going too far to the left, and that it's not going to be good for the country.
0: Congresswoman Susan Brooks represents Indiana's 5th Congressional District. After the break, we go to Texas and ask if the House shakeup is enough to turn the Lone Star State blue. It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. We've been talking about Republican retirements in the House, and now I want to focus on one state in particular.
4: All miles and miles of Texas.
0: As of this recording, four of the 11 retirement announcements have come from Republicans in Texas. This follows five Texas Republicans who retired in 2018 and the loss of two Republican districts that turned blue in the midterms.
3: Seventh district, Republican Congressman
0: John Culberson will lose his seat to the Democratic challenger, Lizzie Fletcher.
1: After more than two decades serving the people of District 32, Republican Congressman Pete Sessions is out.
0: I caught up with former Congressman Pete Sessions to understand what he thinks of his suburban Dallas district he once represented. Now, this district voted lockstep Republican since its creation after the 2000 census. But in 2016, Hillary Clinton won the district. In 2018, voters here supported Beto O'Rourke over Ted Cruz. And of course, Sessions lost his reelection to Democrat Colin Allred.
4: All I can tell you is, is that there was a strong presence of Beto O'Rourke and a zero presence of Ted Cruz. Ted did not come to the district. Ted did not reach that challenge. Ted ran other places. And if you're going to be on the ballot, you got to come defend your territory. And seemingly, that might be one explanation.
0: But how do you account then for Hillary Clinton winning the district?
4: Well, I I think that there was an opportunity. As you know, Texas was not in play. We did not sell the fight or the message. And there was very little attention put to what I would call getting out the vote in Texas and that will not be the case uh this next time i believe in then in, in 2020 there's a real understanding about grassroots organizations meeting with people clarifying understanding our position what my party my republican party stands for economic sanity economic growth the opportunity for people to have jobs 2020 is going to be a definite opportunity for the Republican Party, for Republican candidates, and the electorate to understand that what they have done with their majority is turned the apple cart upside down and want to throw out economic growth, free enterprise, and the things which sustain this country and make it stronger, including jobs, and that pay for our cities and our communities just because of a hatred of Donald Trump. And I think that that I think that's a, towards socialism, and I think that's a, a very interesting opportunity that will offer my party the chance to claw back. I don't think it'll sell in Texas.
0: It sounds like you are not sold on what a lot of the conventional wisdom was post twenty eighteen that the reason that people like Marchant and and Olson are leaving is that in the 2018 election, the suburbs were really difficult for Republicans to hold, were districts like yours, where the president either lost in 2016 or came very, or barely won the district, where he's still uh, relatively unpopular, and that the suburban areas of Texas really give Democrats an opportunity, not only to hold those seats, but to win the state.
4: Well, th- that's that's certainly what the people are trying to push is conventional wisdom. Once again, I would tell you that, th- that the priority during the presidential election uh, was to put uh, Mr. Trump other places, certainly notwithstanding Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, Florida, uh, these other states that we were seeing as spending a good bit of time and uh, money, and the president did win those.
0: Congressman Sessions, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. You bet. Sessions clearly hopes that the presence of Donald Trump on the top of the ticket and an active presence in the state will help Republican chances of winning back this district in 2020. But I'm not so sure about that. Sessions didn't lose the seat because there wasn't enough attention paid to the race. The two campaigns spent over $11 million in 2018. Plus, what pushed this former GOP seat blue wasn't a lack of Trump, but probably too much Trump. These suburban voters may not be liberal Democrats, but they aren't fans of how the president conducts himself. Now, Sessions is right when he argues that voters here could be turned off by a hard left turn by Democrats. This is the sort of district where charges of socialism can stick. Pundits have speculated that Texas could go blue. Demographers expect that by 2022, Latinos will be the largest population group in the Lone Star State. Meanwhile, explosive economic growth in Texas has brought lots of new residents, many of them from blue states like California. Now, that speculation came to a head in 2013. Fresh off re election victory, former Obama campaign field director Jeremy Byrd founded a group called Battleground Texas with the goal of putting the state in play. Also that year, State Senator Wendy Davis, who gained national attention for her fight on abortion rights, ran for governor. Now, Democrats flopped in the 2014 election, but in 2016, Democrat Hillary Clinton improved on Obama's 2012 performance in the state. She lost it by nine points compared to Obama's 16-point loss. Then in 2016, Democrats in Texas pulled off wins in competitive congressional districts and across state offices— And, of course, the race that caught everyone's attention between Beto O'Rourke and Senator Ted Cruz. O'Rourke shocked many as he inched within striking distance of the well-known incumbent. As we look ahead to 2020, the chorus of pundits speculating that Texas will flip blue is getting louder. That seems premature to Cal Gilson, professor of political science at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. I
2: think if you take the big picture, Texas has been overwhelmingly Republican, a deep red state. Uh, since the George W. Bush years in the 1990s. No Democrat has won a statewide race in Texas since uh, 1994. So with that as the background, the fact that over the last several election cycles, Democrats have become slowly more competitive with a snap in 2018, the Beto O'Rourke race against Ted Cruz that seemed to bring the whole uh, Democratic slate Uh, into uh, more competitive status. Beto coming up just two and a half points short. So there is change taking place, but whether that change is is permanent or really a reflection of demographic change plus Donald Trump roiling the waters remains to be seen.
0: Is 2020 then an appropriate marker to see whether this is about real change?
2: Yeah, I, I think that 2020 is important. If you step back to 2018 and see that better O'Rourke race against Ted Cruz, where O'Rourke effectively came out of nowhere, generated a lot of enthusiasm, raised $80 million, and came within two and a half points of defeating Cruz and drugged behind him some new U.S. congressmen. And going forward to 2020, the Democrats in Washington are targeting as many as six, seven, eight, uh, Democrat, uh, Republican held seats mm-hmm. in the U.S. Congress. Now I think that there is a good chance that Democrats pick up maybe three U.S. House seats in 2020 and below that some additional Texas House seats, maybe an additional Texas Senate seat and a lot of, of local offices. So there is movement and that movement is driven by long-term demographic change, but also by Donald Trump roiling the traditional Republican coalition, particularly suburban white women, and driving some of them away, which makes it uh, very unstable, hard to tell exactly how it goes, because you have long-term trends uh, and short-term disruptions.
0: Texas wasn't always deep red. It was obviously the state that produced... Lyndon Johnson, you had Democratic governors, you had Lloyd Benson as Democratic senator. It was only really, as you said, in the 1990s that it turned into its deep red color. So as you look at how Texas moved from Dem to Republican, was that a similar trajectory that it was slow, 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 and then boom, it was pretty clear that it was now Republican? Or did it seem to happen almost all at once?
2: If you think about Texas historically, it was a Democratic state. It wasn't a blue state as we think about it now, right. but it was one-party Democrat. And then the, the Democratic dominance began to come apart. They were increasingly vulnerable till John Tower won a statewide race in, in Texas in 1961 and then in 1978, Uh, Bill Clements was the first Republican governor in Texas since Reconstruction. And so that period, 1960s, 70s, and 80s, running up to George W. Bush's entrance onto the scene was two-party competition, but it's the 1990s behind Bush that that became uh, clear Republican dominance. And what's happening to the Republicans in Texas right now is not unlike what happened to the Democrats in those decades where two-party competition came to Texas.
0: So what's, what's changed about the Texas electorate that makes two-party competition in Texas possible?
2: There is a demographic flow over the border and into Texas that over the last couple decades has accounted for about half of the population change. And then there is uh, population replacement where where the, the, the whites are not replacing uh, population at a very uh, rapid rate. Hispanics and Asians are growing much more rapidly. And then there is the in-migration from other parts of the country, whether that's down out of the Rust Belt or from California To Texas. And some of that in migration is from blue states into. Texas, but you've also got longtime Texans looking at state and national politics and say, my traditional conservative Republican preferences are shaken by what I see Donald Trump doing on the border, what I see him doing in international trade, what I see him doing in international affairs more generally. So there are lots of sources of change, all of which make the Republican Party in Texas more vulnerable. Can
0: we talk about some of those things? What what some of the issues are that the suburban voters, especially suburban women voters, are feeling frustrated, angry, embarrassed about with the president?
2: I think that, that suburban women in particular, uh, people uh, uh, with comfortable suburban lives, probably college education, are raising their children. And they're teaching him to be kind to other people, you know, those sorts of things. And Donald Trump is uh, uh, is calling people names and it's just off-putting. And then you get beyond that to the border. Uh, and and you get people coming across the border looking for asylum, for example, uh, raped on the way through Mexico, coming because the gangs are threatening them in Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. And they they are... You know, in a pitiful situation with children on their hip, uh, family separation, the children uh, in cages as they're described, uh, and voters look at that uh, and are are repelled by it. And I think that has cost Republicans in these suburban districts, not just in the south but throughout the country.
0: I had spoken with former congressman Pete Sessions earlier today, and his point uh, is that, Democrats are going to be vulnerable in these suburbs in 2020 because the Democratic majority in the House and potentially the nominee that Democrats put forward to face Donald Trump are much more left-leaning, especially on economic issues, than the folks in the suburbs. We've heard a lot about Medicare for all. Obviously, President Trump throws out terms like socialism, open borders,
2: well, I expect that Trump will carry Texas. I don't. I don't really see uh, Texas going blue at the presidential level in 2020. If I had to guess, and I don't have to guess, but but I will. I would suggest that he he wins it by less than nine. I think that that Pete Sessions is obviously right that the most vulnerable time for a newly elected congressman is in his or her first re-election. Uh, but those kinds of districts held by newly elected congressmen, some of those will probably be given back uh, to the Republicans, but Democrats will take other seats that Republicans now hold, that will herd seat uh, in South Texas that runs from uh-huh. El Paso. Uh, along the border for 800 miles is very likely to go to a Democrat. I think Pete Olson's district southwest of Houston is likely to go to a Democrat, and maybe this Kenny Marchant district up here in North Texas as well. And I think what Pete and other Republicans, including Donald Trump, need to be very, very worried about is that their principal calling card To the Republican electorate is the steady economy, its growth, its prosperity, stock market gains. This trade war with China is roiling all of that. If a recession were to hit in 2020, as some people talk about, I think that takes away one of the principal talking points that Donald Trump will have.
0: How will we know how steady or not steady the Republican hold is on the state?
2: You, you look at the, the margins by which oh. the, the Republican slate in Texas is winning. Uh, governor Greg Abbott, very popular Republican governor, and the Republican slate in 2014, from the governor at the top all the way down to foolish Republican candidates, all won by 20 points. In 2018, Abbott won re-election by 13 points. Uh, And so Republican margins at the presidential level, the gubernatorial level are falling. And what you would think the Republican leadership in Texas would be doing would be trying to put together an agenda that would speak to the concerns of uh, independents, Hispanic voters, those conservative, often female voters in the suburbs. In order to sort of call them back, they're not doing that. They're doing bathroom bills. They're doing tax cuts. They're doing uh, sort of right-leaning conservative uh, proposals. So if that's their agenda going forward and Donald Trump continues to roil the waters and Democrats can put up decent candidates, you could bring forward two-party competition in Texas in the next Few electoral cycles. In hmm. 2020, if Texas is in play, it means the Democrats already won 40 states. But if you go forward into the mid 2020s and beyond, unless the Republicans adjust in terms of agenda and policy, Democrats will be competitive uh, middle of the decade and beyond.
0: Kel Gilson, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me.
2: It's a great pleasure.
0: Now, SMU's Cal Gilson isn't alone in his skepticism that Democrats can flip the Lone Star State in 2020. The Washington Post's David Byler says it would require an 11-point shift from Republican to Democrat in 2020. A shift that big, he says, isn't impossible, but it's very rare. But as significant demographic shifts in Texas continue to take place and the Republican Party fumbles with how to deal with the president, whose comments alienate a key piece of the electorate they thought they could count on, Texas Democrats are ready to take advantage. Fresh off, Beto's almost win. The state's already starting to get some of the national resources that were previously reserved for places like Ohio and Pennsylvania. To Manny Garcia, executive director of the Texas Democratic Party, the state is ripe to flip.
5: Texas is the biggest battleground state in the country now, and poll after poll after poll is showing it again. When you when you ask Texans, would they vote for Donald Trump or someone else, someone else is winning. In 2016, for the first time in two decades, Texas Democrats posted a single-digit outcome in the presidential race. In 2018, we famously saw the United States Senate race, mm-hmm. uh, Beto O'Rourke versus Ted Cruz, and we cut that margin all the way down to 2.5 points. Looking at that trajectory, looking at how much growth we have, it, it, it is it, it, within our grasp. We're nine seats away from flipping the Texas House. We have more congressional targets here than in any state in the country. We have a United States Senate race that's already within the margin of error, and we have our presidential race. So, um, it's incredibly exciting, and there, there's a lot of targets on the, uh, on the field for us.
0: And, you know, again, it was a narrower margin in 2016, as you pointed out, than in 2012. But it was still nine points. That's still a pretty big margin to overcome in a presidential election.
5: From 2014 to 2018, there were 1.8 million new Texans added to the voter registration rolls. Mm -hmm. Majority women, majority people of color. And if you put that number into perspective, that's like the entire voting age population of New Mexico. We took a whole New Mexico, we dropped it into Texas, and we're becoming incredibly competitive because of it.
0: What was different about 2018 that al- allowed a Democrat to come that close to winning? Mm-hmm. And then what's the bad? What prevented Beto from going from 48 to 50%?
5: So, you know, when, when you look at the good, uh we have incredible growth in uh, suburban Texas. These are places that are very quickly and rapidly growing and diversifying. Um, and increasingly, we are earning the trust of suburban Texans, um, and they are voting for Democrats. We saw this trend all across the country, but we also saw it in Texas. Mm. Um, and in addition to sort of college-educated Anglo voters uh, choosing for Democrats, we also see a diversifying uh, population within suburban texas it resulted in 12 state house pickups the most since reconstruction leaving us just nine seats away now we had a, a complete sweep of harris county um, now you look at houston dallas san antonio austin the real grand valley el paso all of them are run by Democrats. Even at the top of the ticket, Tarrant County, where Fort Worth is at, um, is the, the last Republican stronghold of urban county really in the country. And looking forward now, it's how do we carry those gains down? Now, you know, looking at where we where we came up short and it's really there was a lack of imagination. We can win it now. And so, you know, looking at, you know, the environment now in 2020, we tend to do better in presidential elections than in midterms. Um, you know, we outpaced uh, this last time where midterm exceeded presidential levels. Um, but you look at, you know, where can we close the gap? Well, we got to make sure that we increase our organizing in urban Texas. Voter turnout is still incredibly low. It was a 53% statewide turnout. But if you look at our incumbent districts that are are run by Democrats right now, that turnout was only 38 percent. If you split the difference, we win statewide. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of work to do there, and we need to make sure that we get folks energized and mobilized.
0: You all can increase your turnout, but there's still a lot of folks in uh, places outside of those urban and suburban areas that are going to turn out and probably turn out in record numbers for the president
5: when you look at 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 the presidential cycle just historically over time uh you see that republican cycle after cycle after cycle have been stagnant in their growth it's it's only a slight increase in turnout and then raw number of the number of folks texans that come out to vote for them but what you've seen on the democratic side is tremendous growth between 2012 and 2016 more than 600,000 new voters coming out between 2016 and 2018 another 160,000 and then you look at who has not voted. Well, 2.4 million Texans, Hispanics, Latinos, African-Americans, Asian-American, Pacific Islanders, folks that are inclined to vote for the Democratic Party are registered to vote but have not been participating. It's our job to engage those folks, to tell them what's at stake, to get them fired up about our candidates up and down the ballot, um, and to make sure that we make our case. And I, I think if we do, we win.
0: The Latino vote in Texas has been dubbed many things, but one has been the sleeping giant, that when the Latino voters come of age, they're going to um, sort of assert themselves in a way that is helpful for for Democrats. And just looking through the exit polls in the last couple of elections, you find that while the Latinos made up a little more than a quarter of the vote, they still gave over 30 percent of the vote to Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. So what is going on, do you think?
5: I think pundits need to understand that the Latino community is incredibly diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also have to think about the economic status, the differences, the, the growing up in different communities, whether you grew up in the border or in other places. And all of those are different dynamics that affect people's. Uh, shared experiences their values and what their party preferences at the end of the day and we're not going to be able to get to a hundred percent of the latino vote what we are going to be able to do is we're going to make sure that we identify those voters who are inclined to vote for our our way make our case use our resources as effectively and efficiently to wrap around their lives um, and to engage them
0: are you worried that democrats ultimately um they pursue an agenda that just doesn't sell in some of these n- new re- Democratic pickup seats in in the suburbs.
5: You know, Donald Trump has been <clears throat> the best persuasion program for Democrats that we have seen. Uh, what these suburban voters have seen disgusts them. And because of it, they have actively chosen something that's the exact opposite of what they're seeing from Donald Trump and the Republican establishment, when you ask these voters about, you know, what, what do you care about? What, what are the issues that are motivating? It's healthcare, it's education, it's you know the growth of my community, transportation infrastructure. Um, how are you doing something on gun violence? And it turns out when you ask the Democratic base and and non-voters what are their concerns, it's also healthcare and education and economics and and all the same issues. Um, So, you know, you don't have to choose between both. You you can uh, engage on that issue set. um, And I think folks will be responsive to it.
0: Manny Garcia, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for having me. Manny Garcia is executive director of the Texas Democratic Party. Here's one more thought for me today. I spent a lot of time with members of Congress, well, more accurately, with candidates running for Congress. So this point from Brendan Buck really stuck with me.
3: Ultimately, this comes down to voters and the American people. And in a lot of ways, these members of Congress are acting rationally because this is what people want where they're from. And this is what people want nationally.
0: It's easy to blame our political dysfunction on stuff that has nothing to do with us. You know, it's a Washington, D.C. Swamp thing. But these people didn't get to D.C. on the run. They were elected. If you want to see more members of Congress who are reasonable and fewer who are partisan bomb throwers, well, you need to show up and vote. Especially, it means you need to show up and vote in primaries. Voter participation in the primaries is traditionally really, really low, which means the voices of the extremes get outside influence. That influence can be easily diluted, however, by people who want to see more thoughtful and measured representatives. But those people need to show up. That's all for us today. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook and leave us a comment there. And of course, call anytime at 877 my take or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter, and the show is at The Takeaway. Our team is Amber Hall, Patricia Jacob, Jay Cowett, Vince Fairchild, Claire McKean, Debbie Daughtry, Polly Irungu, Jeevaka Varma, and Deirdre Debke. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.